Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Thank you very much for your talk. I'm Bev Mundell Atherstone. Um, I found it very fascinating to, um, to think about the different groups, the different way that we, we um, celebrate things and look at life through the public sphere or the private sphere. And since we've lived overseas in many different countries, including India, Pakistan, Ethiopia, Kenya, <laughs> so we've seen, we've seen different things in the public versus private sphere, such as in India, weddings, funerals, and so on, are, are all celebrated right on the streets, very much in the public sphere. Um, so I was going to ask you in regard to the multiculturalism, when we've got this big difference between how an individual within the society sees their role, how can them, when someone comes to Canada, in which we have laws which are more private, in other words, the individual gets has to... The individual, not the group, is responsible for their for what the, their behavior. How how do we um, negotiate that within multiculturalism? And then I wanted to give you an example. Um, when we lived in Pakistan, rape was quite different than in, say, Canada, U.S. In rape in Pakistan. When a woman was raped, usually it was a group rape. It was sort of a piling on of uh, all kinds of men onto a woman. If a woman was uh, alone, a young woman was alone, not with her mom, um, she was seen to be uncared for, and um, the idea was that if that the woman was the center of sexuality, and if you're alone, there's no one there to protect men from this sexual, sensual being. And so they had the right... To rape her, so again, um, and whereas I see, in the, I'm guessing that North America and Canada rape seems to be more an individual thing. Um, now and then we hear about gang rape and so on, but not as much as you hear about even recently in India and Pakistan. So maybe you could ad- address these two, or maybe they are intertwined. Thank you. Um, well, uh, let's start with the um, first one. Um, how can we negotiate uh, relations with um, n- new groups that are not used to our rules? Uh, you know, that's always, always, always a problem. And there's a whole field that's devoted, uh, first of all, that's devoted to figuring out better ways to do it. And it's called conflict resolution. Right, and it is—it's designed—it's designed to work in international relations, with labor relations, and with family and marital relations. Uh, so if you go to the airport, I'm sure you can pick up "Getting to Yes" on the airport <laughs> a little book stands. It's the Harvard Conflict Resolution Handbook, and it's in its—I don't know—93rd uh, edition or something like that. And when I became director of a uh, unit at UCLA, my dean gave it to me and said, somebody gave this to me when I became dean. 
um, and um, you know, read it so that the people who you're working for can figure you, you can help them figure out how to work out um, differences between themselves. So. Um, all you have to do is open the newspaper or turn on the TV to look at conflicts that are not being resolved in worse ways these days uh, internationally rather than better ways. Um, so um, rules always change. Societies are dynamic. They're never fixed and static. And so uh, we just have to spend time figuring out what are the kinds of ways in which we can be together with people who are different from us and whom we may not like? The, on the um, handout um, in the, Mendy, the starred one, and I said Judith Butler was a contributor there, she's thinking there about how she's called anti-Semitic. She is herself a Jew. Uh, a secular Jew, how she is called anti-Semitic when she criticizes the Israeli government for their treatment of Palestinians. And she develops a notion there of cohabitation as a kind of ethical principle. We don't get to choose who to live next to on this earth. We get to choose lots of things, but not that. And so we need, to fig we need to figure out how to live not only with the kinds of people we love that we're familiar with. I mean, not that those relations are always all that peaceful, as I'm sure any of you can think of Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, recollect. Um, but the, the real challenge is to learn how to live with people whom we, whom we are not familiar with and whom we may not like. And even though we don't like them, we don't have a right to say, Butler is arguing, that they can't live next to us. And so I think these are just very hard issues, and I wish I had a nice, neat uh, answer to your question, but I don't. Um, and, and on the second one, I, I would just point out that um, sexual relations are very different in every culture. Uh, and plenty of traditional cultures uh, have no rape at all. They don't have sexual assaults. I mean, so don't assume that um, rape of any sort is only occurs in those people's culture, whichever those people are. I'll just remind you that the U.S. military, one out of four women in the U.S. military can expect to be sexually assaulted, and that is the same proportion as for women on U.S. college campuses. Okay, so in case we're feeling superior, uh, and, and look at the military. I mean, it's just to watch them try to figure out how to deal with this, right? It turns out to be a national security issue, right? If you have, if you have any oversight of men's behavior in the military, national security is weakened. It may be the case, but so here we have to balance national security and violence against women. How are we going to do this? I don't know the answer, but we better talk about it in public a lot is what I would say. Thank you. Next. Hi, my name is Henning Mundel. Just as a tiny little tidbit, which was sort of fun, first of all, that was uh, my wife asking the first question. But at our table there, four of us in a row not just also graduates from the UC system, but all four of us from UC Davis. Wow. At the bachelor's, master's, and PhD level. And we just sort of 
well, Bev and I sat together, but just sort of there, four of us together from is UC this, Davis. Is this farmers sit together? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking because UC Davis is a very famous agricultural school. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They specialize in wine growing, in case you wondered. But they call it enology, viticulture yes, and right. enology. enology. Please, the right term. Okay. Sorry for the digression. Um, you have in your talk, talked a fair bit about uh, secular Protestantism and um, its ramifications here in the West, and you've alluded to some degree to secular uh, Judaism, including in your uh, last answer to my last question. I wonder, do you have any wisdom, knowledge to share with us as a group? I certainly feel in my knowledge base completely inadequate with having lived in Islamic countries, uh, some ramifications of Islamic secularism and um, possibilities for adaptation with our secular Protestantism here in the West? Um, let me see. What should I say? I have lots and lots of Muslim students at UCLA. There are lots of Muslims in L.A., the largest uh, Persian population outside of Persia is in L.A., right? You know, these big cities, you can make that claim for, you know, there are 73 home languages the L.A. school system has to deal with. You know, it's a cos these cosmopolitan cities, that's what they look like. Um, and so there are lots of uh, very good relations between Muslims and people of other uh, faiths and, and uh, secular or not, uh, in L.A. there's lots of efforts and public projects around um, joint meetings between Muslims and Jews, for example. There's a lot of activity there uh, with rabbis and um, uh, Muslim leaders getting together and with their groups getting together and having discussions together, uh, getting people used to each other from these many different uh, faiths. I would also point out that the vast majority of Muslims are not in the Middle East, and they are certainly not jihadists. The great majority are in Malaysia and Indonesia, and I don't know, is Pakistan in the Middle East, and uh, in other parts of the world. So we get a very distorted image of Muslims when, when we focus on terrorists uh, in the Middle East, which there are definitely are terrorists in the Middle East. There are, <laughs> I know. Um, but it's it's a so there's a lot of effort in L.A. at getting better relations um, between people and more understanding between people. There's a Middle East Studies uh, program at uh, department at UCLA. I have students both who are veiled and who not not veiled but um, who wear a hijab and um, who don't. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I said that one reason I got into this topic was because of the indigenous knowledge issues. Another was because of a couple of students of mine. There were, in a feminist theory class I taught maybe a decade ago, there were three um, uh, secular Muslim graduate students. We have the, the Journal of Middle, Middle Eastern Women's Studies was coming out of UCLA for quite a while. I think it's moved now to um, Princeton, I, I believe, but the editor was on the faculty. And so 
we had an especially large number of um, Middle Eastern origin, whether or not they were born there, that was their origin, um, graduate students. And um, in the class, there was a uh, discussion of sexuality, not... I mean, not the kind of open discussion that happens in an introduction to women's studies every once in a while, and I think, whoa, (laughs) what did I unleash here? (laughs) Everybody's coming out on everything. I want to say, don't come out, go back (laughs) wherever you've been. Um, No, I'm sorry, that's not fair to treat it that way. Um, But it was just just discussing something or other about uh, sexuality and social research, I forget. And um, one of the students... She she looked like she was about to cry, and the and you know she's twenty five years old okay and so the f- friend who was sitting next to her who's also Muslim reached over and touched her and I paused and said um, did I say something disturbing and um, she said I w- I just couldn't imagine having this discussion where I came from it's just so moving and interesting to be able to have it here. And I tell the story because it's these, and there was a silence in the room. There were about 15 students in the room sitting around a seminar table. And it it was a moment of, what should I say, intimacy and appreciation for the value of getting to talk and think with people so different from each other, right? That we, we get a sense of their souls, of who... I'm not a religious person, remember, but we have souls even if we're not religious people. <laughs> I get a sense of the person and who the person is intensely. When we let ourselves be in positions, seek out opportunities to have the kinds of discussions you folks are obviously having here on a regular basis for, what is it, 76 years or something? Some. 40. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's darn good. <laughs> and I think to just... Uh, so um, I think the major issue is, uh, I was saying this before, um, h- how, can, how can we do two things at once? Respect the importance and value of the particular cultural and historical legacies we call our own. And make community, become community with people who don't have those legacies. And, I mean, the short answer is to go out and do it, to work together on shared projects. There's lots of projects one can work with people on, whether they're environmental issues. They don't even have to be trying to have uh, valuable discussions between Muslims and Jews, though that's a terrific project. Uh, they can be around issues that don't aren't quite so contentious, such as environmental issues or housing for poor people, or I'm sure you can think of a whole bunch of others. Uh, and and that way, that's how we make community. That's how we make friends and make the kinds of circles that are so distinctive and valuable. I would say in the U.S. and Canada, and a little harder to do in in other European countries, for example. Uh, my name's Austin Fennell. Thanks for your address. I felt rather badly that you had to continually curtail a line of thought because of your time restraints, but we understand that here. Um, uh, we're having a real great time in Canada trying to figure out the various kinds of secularism that we're encountering, and particularly in Quebec. However, 
here in Lethbridge, we have our own kind of secularism. Sometimes the message from that is that religion does not possess truth. It does not have any knowledge that you can depend on. I'd like you to comment on that, but I also wonder whether secularism sometimes does not have the capacity to be self-critical. Would you comment, please? Thank you. Can I just ask for a second? Um, what are you thinking about when you say that secularism does, suggesting secularism does have the capacity to be self-critical? Well, that's a question. Does it have that capacity to be self-critical? Oh, thank you. Okay, well, I would say that this literature I'm recommending is, part of, is a big example of it. This Social Science Research Council literature, of which I think there are three or four books on here coming out of it. Some of those people are um, are, are, are uh, observant. Uh, many are not. But they're concerned precisely with your question. What does it mean for secularism to be self-critical? Uh, is that a position that can only, can criticism only come from a religious perspective? Or can it and criticism of the secularist stance come from a secular position. And that's the issue the SSRC is talking about. Um, so, um, I, yes, secularism indeed can be self-critical, and there's uh, some terrific examples of it um, that are around today. Um, your first question, um, does religion have truth? You know what? I don't know the answer, and there's no way I'm going to try to give an answer. <laughs> there are all kinds of truths. Let's ask a different question. Does science ha have any known truths? Does science produce any known truths? It produces some pretty reliable claims, the heart surgeon does his work and the airplane pilots do their work, right? And most of the time it's pretty good. But after all, the reason that we value science, this is going to be an, an unusual way to put the issue, but it's one very familiar in the world of science studies I work in. The reason we value science is because it's the most efficient error-making machine ever invented. And that's the point of it, to try to find the limits to the claims we're testing. So scientific method, okay, now you, now you got me going as a philosopher. Scientific method will always only give you the least false of any and all, of only any and all the hypotheses you've tested for now. That's pretty limited because there are plenty of hypotheses that haven't been tested yet. They come along every day. Who knew that continents were moving around, right, on tectonic sliding around on the surface of the earth on tectonic plates? We don't, still aren't sure what the heck genes are, right? And look, poor Pluto got declassified, <laughs> got thrown out of the organization of planets, right? So, um, so I, the point of science is to try to find the limits to the kinds of what we regard as the most reliable claims. It can produce very reliable claims. So, too, do the Cree goose hunters in the north of Canada. So do the Pacific Island navigators who, are, who have no written language. 
they can say, they have figured out for maybe millennia, but certainly for many centuries, how to travel 5,000 miles over the open ocean in a canoe and get back. That's really something. <laughs> and they have all kinds of ways of thinking about it uh, that, that are kind of hard for us to wrap. It's, I have my students read them, and it's hard to wrap their mind, one's mind around it, but they work. They're highly theoretical, sophisticated theoretical ways of thinking about things. So um, I, I think that what's, I don't think questions of truth are interesting questions to tell you the to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, I think the more interesting questions are about, are we overvaluing modern Western science? What, what it does is, does it fortunately is an efficient error-producing machine, so we can hopefully get to find out faster about what's killing us and we should stop doing it. Though, as we know, in some cases that the knowledge hasn't been sufficient but <laughs> to stop us from doing it anyway. Um, but um, also, uh, we, we need better to understand what the strengths of other cultures' knowledge systems are because those knowledge systems have enabled them to flourish, not beautifully, not, they're not perfect, uh, but to be, to be able to survive and flourish for millennia in very difficult conditions, whether it's on equatorial jungles or ar Arctic uh, conditions, mountaintops, and so forth. Uh, and modern Western science, you know, the balance sheet is, they're very good at some things and they're really bad at other things. Um, so to get a balance between them is a good thing to do. Have a <clears throat> I'm Albert Anas, and thank you for telling the truth. I appreciated your presentation, uh, but I like to have a look at the Christian work ethic, which we have come to accept. Is that a secularization of Christianity, a symptom of secularization of Christianity, with the result people become very much self-interested? And if I go to the Bible, which I believe is directed by the Creator, and he gives our how we are to live. We are supposed to take care of each other. The Jewish people, they had every seven years, they would get back their land again, and they would share, and they had 50 years oops, uh, jubilee, and, and uh, all that. And then you go to the New Testament, where we read that you should even lend money to your neighbor without expecting interest or without expecting him to give it back. Now, that's not the Christian work ethic. So, Going by what the Bible is and where Christianity is based on the Bible, I believe, is the work ethic a symptom of secularization of Christianity? I like your comments on that. Okay, I have a question for you. Pardon? I have a question for you. Oh. Are you part of the Bank of Dad? A part of? The Bank of Dad, you know, the Bank of Mom and the Bank of Dad, were there all these loans given no, with no, no interest and little expectation of being paid back? And, and money has very little value to me, and as far as skin goes, I'm colorblind. Okay. <laughs> I Have bet, a good day. I bet the Bank of Mom and Dad is alive and well in this room. <laughs> and we... This, this is very, I mean, that's a very good question because it's a, these are tra traditional financial relations we're talking about, the bank of mom and dad, right? 
right? No interest, maybe you get paid back or not. Ba the, the Bank of America doesn't tolerate that. I mean, look at the housing bubble and so forth. So we have a clash of modernity and uh, tradition here. Um, but you're, and I think that you're right in, in your, uh, your question was about um, whether Christianity and, how did you put it? And the work ethic. Christian work ethic is a symptom of secularization of Christianity. Yeah, that's... It's the result of people becoming self-interested instead of sharing. I, I, I'm not sure uh, about the last part of that, but uh, and I'm not a sociologist myself, but that was Max Weber's argument, uh, that the work, the work ethic is a Protestant ethic, not a Roman Catholic ethic, and it's certainly not a pre-modern ethic. The, the Catholic Church had, uh, what did it had, uh, 150 saints' holidays or something like that? Uh, that's the way to live, you know? <laughs> we're, we're overworked here. It was, I don't know, I think it's 200 saints' holidays. It's huge. Um, so um, the, the work ethic isn't necessarily always about greed, and it's certainly in the history of Christianity has not been. Um, I mean, sometimes it has been, yes. But um, at other times, it's been a sign of godliness. I'm, I'm not a theologian or a scholar of Christian, uh, different Protestant sects, but I know that uh, the fact that one's is successful, successful in worldly matters for some Protestant faiths has been a sign that one is leading a good Christian life. It's a uh, a, a sign of um, one's um, right to enter the uh, good part of the uh, of the uh, after death world, um, and after all, um, work is pleasure. A lot of work is pleasurable. I know this is not a good room to say this to, <laughs> and I'm only, I'm only using the R word about my. I'm retiring myself at the end of this year, and I'm terrified. Um, so. Um, but a lot of us love our work, and whether or not we're being paid for it, we like to do it, and we feel good when we do it. And in many cases, we feel it makes the world a better place to do it. Now, most of a lot of us are wrong about that, but um, that's the way we feel. And so I think greed is quite a separate thing. One can be very greedy and not doing any work at all, um, like Wall Street. <laughs> Sandra, <laughs> we have two more questionnaires, so I'd like to honor them and give them a chance to ask their questions. We can take the two, que take the two questions, and then I'll respond to okay. both Okay. Okay, my name is Frank Toth. I, I, I kind of resist this thing of putting a time clock on beautiful information. Firstly, I want to say my name is Frank Toth. I think I have a justifiable reason for asking you a question about religion, the various religions that you studied so intensely. I have the honor to do it because I've already been down in, I've worked in purgatory or in the coal mines. That gives me the right. But secondly, you have to get, get to the question, secondly, please, uh, Frank. See, see what I'm talking about? Yes. <laughs> you know me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, with all your intense studies of religion and secularism, in your estimation, which of the hundreds of religions is there that represent the real God, whose, whose God is really right? 
I always ask the basics. Secondly, do you think, do you think that the terrible, terrible things have happened to the basic First Nations of Canada and the United States by the clergymen reflect on any studies of religion. Thank okay. you. Thanks, the, Frank. The validity of studies of religion. Thanks, Thank Frank. You. And we'll ask our next questioner to come forward, too, so she has okay. both of them sure. together. Hi, Dr. Harding. Thank you so much. My name is Trina Filan, and I'm a professor at, of women and gender studies at U of L one of the UCD alum from the state, sorry. And uh, I am wondering a couple of things. My students at the moment are uh, learning how to unpack their invisible knapsacks of privilege. Okay? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the Protestant uh, secularism and religious Protestantism uh, could be considered privileged standpoints, both of them, uh, in the states particularly. And I'm wondering, one, how we go about unpacking those, if it's a necessary thing in order to uh, further multicultural um, projects. And, um, well, yeah, that's the, the next question, really. How do we go about, if we're going to have multicultural alliances and projects that are productive and uh, positive, is unpacking privilege and acknowledging it necessary? Thank you. Well, let me go to the preceding question first. Um, first of all, I don't study religion at all. I do study secularism, which is an entirely different matter, um, and uh, and only a little bit. I mean, I'm a, it's just one small part of uh, what I do. I got interested in this um, question. And of the many, many hundreds and thousands of religions in the world, which one um, does indeed uh, worship the real God, I would say all of them do, because what cultures regard as uh, religious and uh, spiritual experience differs from culture to culture. And the majority of the world's people are, are not monotheistic. Native Canadians and Native Americans, for example, are not monotheistic. For them, as for many other cultures, religion is not about a supernatural being. It's about wayfinding, finding one's way in the world. And that's another problem with the secularist stance. It prevents us from even understanding what counts as religious and spiritual experience for other people. We think of it in terms of a supernatural being, the way Judaism and Catholicism and um, Islam do. Uh, but for many cultures uh, in the world, it, it's very different. Um, and the uh, second question, um, where are you again? She's, she's over there. Oh, great. As a former director of uh, women's studies myself, I just want to say hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do we go about... Uh, coming to terms with the different ways in which we have privilege. Um, I, I, th I think that's a very difficult question, but it's, there are lots of examples around us all the time. One thing is to, to learn about what are our privileges. I mean, most children th think that the way their family lives is the way everybody lives. I started kindergarten in Los Angeles, and for some strange reason that nobody can explain to me, instead of saluting the flag each morning, 
we would put our hands over our hearts and sing, the eyes of Texas are upon you. (laughs) And it wasn't until I moved to New Jersey at the age of seven, and I was in a state of shock because they didn't, the flag was there and they put their hands on their hearts, but they didn't sing, the eyes of Texas are upon you. My, My mother had... This is the first she'd become aware of that for the preceding three years I'd been singing the eyes of Texas are upon you <laughs> before the flag salute. Right? Um, and I think there was some uh, ethnic revolt in the kindergarten or something going, <laughs> going on there. Um, so I think learning, getting to know other people who are different from us, us on a one-to-one basis. Uh, and um, also just, I mean, you don't, one-to-one is always wonderful, but there's also just learning about it theoretically, taking classes, reading histories, uh, understanding how people have come to transform their worlds when faced uh, with challenges to them from other places, and to be able to do so without demonizing mm-hmm. any of the parties. Um, of course, to the young, the earlier generations always look like people who are wrong. Those are wrong, wrong, wrong generations. Um, I've been interested in my own particular trajectory here in that I've been coming back to rethink uh, the kinds of people I was trained by in the philosophy of science who were logical positivists. They were Jews and socialists who from, from Germany and Austria uh, who had been trying to uh, bring together the sciences in Europe to solve the social problems that Hitler and fascism were solving in hideous ways. And they came to the, they escaped, fortunately, from Austria and Germany and came to the U.S. Quite a few of them ended up coming to UCLA, in fact. Um, and um, there they ran into, in the U.S., they ran into McCarthyism and the Cold War, which was not happy with, A, socialists, and it was highly anti-Semitic. Semitic. I mean, most of the U.S. was at that time in the 1950s. Um, but the House on American Activities Committee was particularly anti-Semitic as well as um, uh, anti-commie. And so the kinds of accommodations this generation had to make in their philosophy as it was, they, they are the ones who defended a value-neutral science. And these are people who had had to change their philosophy twice in the face of severe political threats. Right? So that their, their philo- choices of a philosophy were not at all value-neutral. They were made for political reasons, but for them... Value neutrality, A, looked right to them. It's like assimilation that was we were talking about. Um, it looked right to them. Uh, and B, it was clearly uh, going to save their lives, and I mean, in a very real sense. So I think I'm very interested in understanding how it is that people come to hold the kinds of beliefs they do. What are the social circumstances that lead them to find um, some kinds of um, beliefs good and valuable, and then what? How do they? What do they do as they transform themselves? And so I think just um, what you're doing in your classes, uh, as I can pick up, of, of pointing out that Protestantism is a kind of privileged 
um, secular or religious, uh, in either case, uh, position in North America. Uh, at least it has been uh, for a long time, um, and that um, there were reasons why, why that ha- why that happened and how it happened. Um, but we don't have to retain that privilege, while at the same time we can still respect uh, Protestant the importance of, of Protestant beliefs. So for me, the challenge is how to find the middle way without compromise. It's not about comp- it's not about giving up beliefs one dearly wants to hold on to. It's about how to hold two conflicting beliefs at the same time (laughs) in ways that allow us to live (laughs) and move forward and create the kinds of communities we think we should be creating and and that we want to live in. And and that's an excellent place to challenge us to work at. Thank you very much, Sandra.